Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have authority to speak a word and to heal and to restore and to bring salvation. And so we pray, uh, Lord, that you'll even now speak to us and restore us and challenge and encourage us where we need to be challenged and encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to preach based on our Old Testament uh, reading today, which is from 1 Kings chapter 18. And I really encourage you to take out the Bible and look at it because our lectionary, I mean, for obvious reasons, is a lengthy passage, but uh, had to cut out some of the parts. Some of the best parts <laughs> are cut out. And so uh, if you would take out a Bible or take out your own Bible, the Bible is available in the pew, and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Not sure where that's at in the Pew Bible. Yeah, number. Page 300. All right, right on the note. Um, we're going to talk about Elijah today and, and even next Sunday and maybe the Sunday after that. Um, Elijah ministered about 800 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And it was a time of, of unfaithfulness in Israel. The leadership was unfaithful to God. The people were unfaithful to God. What was happening is they were turning their backs on the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were beginning to worship the, the gods, the idols of their pagan neighbors. So um, Israel at this time, again, about 800 years before the coming of Christ, was spiritual but godless. Lots of spirituality but they were not worshiping the true God, or they were trying to have it both ways. So God sends Elijah to call them back to himself. And the very name Elijah is instructive. The very name Elijah is a message to the people of Israel. Elijah means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God, not Baal, not these other gods. Now, I think there are some parallels between Elijah's time and our time. Obviously, there's vast differences, but I think there are some parallels. We're living at a time in the United States where there is a decline in belief in the God of the Bible. Uh, atheism, agnosticism is on the increase. There was a Pew uh, Research poll that came out in 2015 um, on religious affiliation, and it showed that the last seven years... The increase of people who say that they're unaffiliated, which includes atheists, agnostics, and I don't know, uh, that's on the increase by about 7% across the general population. So that's not dr drastic, it's significant, 7% increase, but not drastic. But then among young people, 18 to 20-somethings, so the millennial generation, it's like one-third one-third of young people saying that they are either atheist, agnostic, or they just don't know what they believe. And so I think there's something of a decline, religious decline, in our nation. And then at the same time, you have this very strong belief in our culture, a strong message in our culture, that you really can't make any truth claims when it comes to religion. Uh, Religion is a matter of subjective opinion, and it's best to keep that opinion to yourself. And that's a strong message in our culture. I saw an interview with Morgan Freeman. Uh, I don't know if you know that he's done this um, documentary, National Geographic, on belief. And uh, in the interview, the person asked him, well, what do you believe? 
Morgan Freeman personally about God. And he said, well, the most important thing is that my belief doesn't challenge your belief and your belief doesn't challenge my belief. That's the most important thing. So, and I can understand that impulse. I mean, we don't want there to be conflict over religion. Um, but what that means is you're taking religion and religious belief out of the realm of truth. And it's just subjective because truth challenges. And you're saying you can't, you can't talk about religion in those terms. And I think that's a very common belief in our culture today. So the question is, how can we live faithful in an increasingly faithless culture? Now, how can we think about what's happening in our day and in our time? And I think the story of Elijah can help with that. So let's turn to this story. What I'm going to do is just kind of walk us through the story. And then at the end, uh, some points of application. So first, we're just going to walk through the story and then we'll talk about how it might apply to our times and to us today. The story starts, again, 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse uh, 20. It starts with Ahab. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. If you look at the previous verse, he gathered the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets, and then 400 prophets of Asherah, who was the, Baal is the god, Asherah is the goddess and the consort of Baal. And so these are the prophets that Ahab had gathered on uh, at Mount Carmel. Who was Ahab? Well, <laughs> Ahab was the most wicked king in Israel. And that's saying a lot. I mean, that's a notorious kind of distinction here. That If you look at just... At this time, Israel is divided between the north and the south, the northern kingdom of Israel, and then the southern kingdom of, of Judah with Jerusalem there at the capital, uh, the city of David. And uh, in my study Bible, ESV study Bible, they have a nice chart that, that evaluates the different kings of Israel and Judah. And in the chart on uh, Israel's side, the northern kingdom, 18 out of 19 of these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. They were evil kings. You have one exception, something of exception, which is Jehu. But so Ahab is, um, is the worst of the worst. First Kings 16.30 says this, uh, Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, behind Ahab was a woman named Jezebel, and uh, she was not an Israelite. She was born in Phoenicia, uh, in the region of today we would call Lebanon, and in the city of Tyre. And uh, Jezebel's father was a king, so it was expedient for Ahab to marry Jezebel for political reasons. But uh, her father was a king, and not only that, he had been a priest, a high priest of Baal. So do you think that Jezebel left behind her religious beliefs when she got married to Ahab? No. She brought it in to the marriage with her. In fact, Kings tells us that she brought with her 450 priests of Baal when she got married to Ahab. That's a lot of people. I mean, in, my, in our little subgroup of the Anglican Church of North America, I don't think we have 450 priests in Pear, USA at this time. I mean, ACNA does, but our little subgroup, that's a lot of people. And so she brings in the 450 priests, and then there's the, the uh, priest of Baal, and then the, the priest of Asherah as well. And it says that these priests ate at her table, so she was supporting them. And Ahab, her husband, built a temple for Baal. And, and, and so they were supporting Baal worship, 
Not only that, but she tried to destroy the prophets of Yahweh, the prophets of Israel. So she wasn't satisfied just practicing her own religion. She had a program to exterminate belief in the God of Israel and to replace it with the worship of Baal. It was a systematic program. So, and she's really the evil power behind Ahab. And somebody has said, um, Jezebel was Ahab's spouse but Ahab was her mouse. Well, so Israel at this time is becoming increasingly pagan. And because of the idolatry, uh, God disciplines the people of Israel, punishes the people of Israel by sending a drought, which Elijah had predicted. Elijah told King Ahab and Jezebel, there's not going to be rain anymore until I say so. That didn't make popular with Ahab and Jezebel. But by the time we get to Mount Carmel, it's been three years. This is year three of the drought. And you can imagine what that was like. Three years of a drought. The ground is cracked, hard as concrete. The plants have withered up. Animals are dying. People are starving. They're trying to eke out an existence in the dust. And they're desperate. And so... God sends Elijah into this set of circumstances. And here's what happens. Look at his bold faith. In verse 21, Elijah comes near to all the people and says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Um, Some commentators say the image there is like somebody hobbling on crutches. Like in the Hebrew, it conveys a sense of somebody hobbling on crutches. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? When we spiritually compromise, when we try to have our feet in two different camps, when we have divided loyalty, it makes for an unstable life. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow follow Him. And the people, they're so paralyzed by their their spiritual compromise, that they didn't even answer him a word. So, Elijah, this is where it gets kind of fun and interesting. Elijah says, okay, we're going to have a contest. There's going to be a showdown on Mount Carmel. You guys take a bull and build an altar and put sticks on it and cut up the bull and put the bull on the altar. I'll do the same thing. You pray to your God, I'll pray to my God. And then it says in verse 24, um, Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. We're going to settle this once and for all. And so then the uh, the prophets of Baal get going. You know, Elijah says, I'm only one against 450 or 800, 850 maybe at this time. But the text says 450 prophets of Baal were there. So he says, I'm only one against 450. But we're going to have this contest. You, and, and so the prophets of Baal start. They begin dancing. Um, starting in the morning till noon. They dance around the altar. How many people are out here watching this? I don't know. You know, thousands? Ten thousands? Bush Stadium full of people seeing who's going to win this contest? Um, the, the prophets of Baal are dancing around this altar. The blood of the bull running down the dry stones. They're getting... Hot and sweaty, they they crying out to their gods. They're limping around the altar, which was some sort of ritualistic dance. They're kind of ratcheting it up here. 
And then they really get desperate and they start cutting themselves, it says. Cutting themselves with swords and lances. The blood is running out of their arms. They're in a mad rage. Now, Elijah, this is, this is one of the most prominent examples of sarcasm in the Bible. Because Elijah doesn't just sit quietly by and say, oh, you know, I'll wait my turn. But he's mocking them as they go. You know, he, he says, maybe you're God's away on a business trip. Maybe he's on vacation. It's a nice time of year in the Caribbean. Maybe he's there. Maybe he's in deep contemplation. You need to wake him up. Uh, and then he even gets a little more salty. He says, perhaps your God is relieving himself. Now, a Jewish translators try to soften that language. They, they said, maybe he's busy at the privy. <laughs> now, that sounds a little be- better, doesn't it? Maybe your God's busy at the privy. Well, verse 29 says, as, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And I think that's a reference to the time of the sacrifice in Jerusalem, the evening sacrifice. Uh, but there was, listen to this, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention because their religion was empty. It was godless. There was no God there. So now it's Elijah's turn. He says, okay, everybody get closer. Come closer. I mean, Elijah's faith at this point in his life is like off the charts faith. Now, he's not always like that. But here in this instance, Elijah's faith is, is just bursting. And so he says, I want everybody to come closer and see what's about to happen. And just so you know that there's no shenanigans here, that I'm not, you know, going to strike a match or whatever they use to light a fire then, a flint rock, I don't know. And he said, I-, I want you to know that this is going to be a work of God. So pour water on the altar, not just once, not just twice, three times until the water is flowing from the uh, sacrifice, the stones are drenched, the trench around the altar is filled with water. And then he just prays a simple prayer. And this is an example of how, you know, with the God of the Bible, we don't have to go through all these um, raving uh, repetitions and, and, and crazy actions to get God's attention. We can just call out to him in prayer. And so he prays simply to the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've turned their hearts back. And then the fire fell. And it says it consumed not just the altar, not just the sacrifice, but the woods, the sticks, the dust, and it licked up the water. And in my mind, I try to imagine what this must have looked like after it was over. I mean, first of all, imagine what the fire must have looked like coming from the sky. And then afterwards, what do you have left? A black crater, maybe? Like a missile had hit something and just obliterated it, and there's just this black smoking crater left. And the people hit the deck. (laughs) Okay, we got the message. The Lord, He is God. Yahweh is God. This God is in charge of the rain and the fire and the storm and the drought. You see, Baal's, Baal, Baal worship was revolved around the belief that Baal was in charge of the rain and fertility and fire. And they say, no, the Lord is God. He's the Lord of the rain and of the fire. 
So, um, what can we take away from this story for our times? God is certainly calling the people of Israel back to faithfulness to Himself uh, in this original story of Elijah. And when this story was written for the people of Israel, He wants them to maintain faith in Him alone. The first thing I think for us is make a choice. We've got to choose who we are going to serve in our culture today. And I think we have to renew that choice periodically throughout our lives. Remember Elijah's words. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? We live in a culture that, where the, the God of the Bible is increasingly being attacked. Where Christianity is increasingly be, becoming uh, seen as extreme. And, and the question for us is, will we stand firm for our faith in God in a culture like this? Or will we serve the gods of the culture? Will we serve the gods of this age? What are some of the gods of this age? Money, sensuality, power, materialism, the God of self. You know, what I want to do goes. So the question for us is, are we going to choose to stand with God in a culture that is increasingly turning its back on God? It used to be in the United States that it was advantageous socially to be part of a church. That's, that's not the case so much anymore. I mean, still here in the Midwest, it's somewhat advantageous. But there are parts of the United States where if you go to church on a regular basis, that's just seen as very strange and extreme. And it's, income, it's becoming increasingly like that even around here. It's not the case anymore. What is God up to? I don't know what God is up to in the United States and the West. But perhaps one thing that He's doing is He's, is he's um, thinning the herd, so to speak. And He's saying to the church, choose who you're going to serve and stop limping around between two opinions. And, uh, and I think maybe God might be refining His church in doing this and making the church even stronger. So that's the first thing. We have to, we have to choose and decide that for, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And we're going to stand. Even if nobody's standing with us. The second thing is to be bold. Elijah, we need to pray for boldness. Elijah was certainly bold in this scene. Of course, he prayed bold prayers. He, he uh, spoke up boldly for God. He challenged false beliefs. He was bold. And um, I'm not saying, of course, that we do the exact same things that Elijah d- did. I'm not saying let's, let's call our atheists and agnostic friends and say, you know, come over to my house for a bon- bonfire. You're not going to believe what's going to happen. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> I, I don't think that would be... No, Elijah was called uh, for... A, 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 he was a unique prophet for a unique time and setting. But that boldness is something that we ought to pray for. And we ought to pray bold prayers. And we ought to understand that that God is still the living God and He's doing amazing things. And that He would show up in powerful ways in the lives of those who do not believe. Now that's what this was, to demonstrate that this God is living and active. And He's the true God for people who didn't know, who weren't sure. And so, I mean, a couple of weeks ago we heard from Matt Walter about these visions that God is giving people in the Muslim world. People who are seeking truth, they're having visions of Christ. The living God is still active and demonstrating that He's alive and that Christ is His Son, that Jesus is His Son. So let's pray bold prayers. Let's pray that God would send the fire, the fire of His presence, the fire of His purity, the fire of His holiness to the church in the United States to renew us so that we would be willing to speak up for God when given the opportunities. 
God has sent revivals through the history of the United States, the Great Awakenings, the renewal of the 1970s. It's the same God, and He can do it again. So let's pray bold prayers that He will show up and send the fire of renewal and revival. And then finally, let's remember, this is probably the most important thing perhaps, is just, because I think this is the major point of the passage, just remember that the Lord is God, that He is in control, that He is sovereign. This is what the people on Mount Carmel learned in a very dramatic way. The Lord, He is God. And even though things might feel out of control to us sometimes, we look at the world scene, we look at what's happening politically, we, we look at the way the culture is changing, and it seems like sometimes things are careening out of control. And I've heard people say, you know, it's like I woke up one day and, and the culture's changed. All of a sudden, overnight, things are different, and, and, and it seems like things are out of control. But you know, God uses difficult and strange times to work out His purposes. None of this is surprising to God, what's going on in our country and in the church at large. God is in control. And He uses strange times and, and uh, difficult days for His purposes. I came across this in a book by John Piper on missions. He was talking about in the 1930s, um, J- Japan invaded Korea. And so a lot of Koreans fled Japan for Russia. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately for them, Stalin was in control of Russia in the 1930s. So these, these poor Koreans, they're invaded by Japan. They're dislocated by the Japanese invaders. They go to Russia. Stalin's in charge of Russia. And then he relocates them. And uh, he re- relocated them to a, a village uh, where the, the, Uzbek, uh, the Uzbek people, I think is how you pronounce it, the Uzbek people lived in this village. Now, the Uzbek people were majority Muslim at this time, and they had resisted missionaries coming into their villages and speaking to them about Christ. In these groups of Koreans, among these, this Korean group that had been displaced, were pockets of very strong believers in Jesus Christ. And now they're with the Uzbek people in this village, and they began witnessing for Christ. And, and they... People are attracted to them. They're great workers. They're great family people. And, and people start to get attracted to them and say, What's, you know, tell me about your life. And they begin sharing to these Uzbek people who Jesus Christ is. And a revival kind of starts in this village. Not only among the Uzbek people, but the Kazakh people as well. Another people group there. And so that started, that started in the 1930s. And the first public sign of that revival took place in June 2nd, 1990. A Korean, American Korean, went over to Kazakhstan. And he preached, the first time this ever happened in this region of the world, he preached in the open air to swelling crowds about the salvation of Jesus Christ. It was the first open air meeting in the history of the Soviet Central Asia. And so, the point is this. Think about those Koreans in 1930, thinking... Is God in control here? What's God doing? Does God care about us? But God used that to work out His purpose to reach these people who had not been reached with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, God is in control. God is in control of what's happening. So, the same God of Elijah, this God of Israel, who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is with us today. He's with us today. And so we're called to be bold for Him, to stand up, maybe when nobody else is willing to stand, to not compromise. God help us not to compromise 
And then to just remember that the Lord is God. He is sovereign. He's in control. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for uh, your, your Word. We thank You for the story of Elijah, the example of Elijah. We pray that You would help us to examine maybe places in our life where we've, we've compromised, where we've been limping between two opinions, where we've not really put our feet solidly, um, solid, solidly standing on Your Word and maybe being pulled into the, into the world and uh, tempted to follow false gods. Help us to, to see that in our life and to repent and to reaffirm our commitment to You. Help us, God, to believe that You are sovereign. You are Lord over what's happening in the United States and throughout the world. And You are working out Your purposes for Your glory. Help us to put our trust in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.